Church, we're excited to worship with you all this morning. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 95. It says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So we intend to do just that this morning. So if you're able to and can, just stand with us as we sing songs to the one true king. We lift praises to his name this morning. Move the mountain. 
Amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, hey, welcome to Fellowship Fayetteville. We're excited to, to worship with you guys this morning. My name is Ryan Burton. I'm a worship leader here at the church, and I serve primarily on Sunday nights in the college ministry, and we've got a cool college update here in just a little bit, but before we give that, I wanna kick it over to my buddy Andy, who's gonna give us a Celebrate Recovery update. Hey, y'all. Uh, so glad you're here today. Thanks for being here this morning. So glad we get to worship together. Uh, my name is Andy Petrie, and I have the privilege of being able to lead our Celebrate Recovery ministry here at Fellowship Fayetteville. And if you're not sure what Celebrate Recovery is, it's a, it's a part of our church for designed to give a safe place for those of us that are dealing with any sort of brokenness, any sort of hurts, any sort of bad habits that are going on within our life. And uh, to be a safe place for us to process those, to find community, and to find healing as we walk closer with Jesus. And we've got something super, super exciting happening. We're celebrating our third year of Celebrate Recovery here at the Fellowship Fayetteville campus, which is super, super cool. And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> and we wanna do invite you to, to come and check it out. We're gonna be, uh, it's gonna be happening this Friday, the service is gonna start at seven o'clock. We're gonna be celebrating some of the lives that have been changed through what we're doing. And we have a really special guest uh, speaker, uh, Mickey Rapier, our directional leader for Fellowship Bible Church, one of our elders here, is gonna be sharing his story of how he found healing and hope through Jesus. And so it's gonna be a great night. We would love to see you there. It's gonna be this Friday, seven o'clock, right here in this room. And we, we'd love to have you there and be a part of that. Thanks, Andy. Well, hey, I've had many different men come up to me and say, man, it seems like Margo's up here every single week giving a new update about something the women's ministry is doing, some new event or Bible study they're doing. Like, when are the men gonna do something? Today is the day that we get to announce this. And so, uh, men's monthly gathering will be happening, happening every fourth Friday for the foreseeable future. So we're gonna kick things off this month, February 25th. So there's, there's two options, two times that you could come attend that. Uh, one at 6.30 in the morning if you wanna come uh, before work starts or if you wanna come at your lunch break at noon. And so that could be a bring your own lunch type situation. We will have coffee and water at both of those, but bring some breakfast or bring some lunch if you wanna you wanna eat while you uh, gather, that's gonna be in the FSM room. And we're gonna have uh, a short, uh, short teaching that'll happen and then some room to, to kind of discuss amongst um, the men that are in pursuit of Jesus. And so please come, come join that if you're interested in that. And then lastly, uh, like I said earlier, I get to serve a lot with the college ministry and it's such a blessing. Garland, who's gonna teach us today, is our team lead and it's a really fun team to be a part of and this is, uh, we've been in, back in this semester for about a month now. It's been really cool um, to see what God's been doing. Been having a lot of students come on Sunday nights, um, around 500 students each night. And um, man, we're excited for that. Of those 500 students, about 100 of them are involved in some small groups that we're doing that are meeting um, throughout the week. And so um, we don't get pumped up about those numbers just to get pumped up about them. But the truth is, that there's 500 students from the university that are in this room on Sunday nights that are hearing the gospel every single week. And so that's what we're celebrating, is, is that we get to preach the gospel to these students, and there's a lot of students that are in the room that are not believers, and so it's such a privilege to be a part of that. And so we're praising the Lord um, for the work that he's doing in that college ministry. Um, and we're gonna continue to praise him this morning. So if you would, let's stand together. Uh, I'm gonna pray for us and we'll continue to sing songs. 
Well, Father, you're so good to us and we can see that evidently um, so clearly in the work that you're doing in our individual lives and in the ministries um, you've set in this church. God, we just stand here humbled and thankful for your goodness and your grace in those areas. And God, what humbles us most of all is your greatness, God, that you, you choose us to love as great as you are and as, and as weak as we are, as humble as we come before you, God, you chose us. God, it's your greatness that we can uh, proclaim this morning. We give glory to you. And so church, let's, let's sing, let's proclaim how great the Lord our God is. How great is our God. Oh, sing with me how great our God and all will sing how great how great is our God sing it again how great is our God oh sing with me how great is our God Oh, see how great, how great is our God.
together and proclaim your greatness this morning. God, all the earth shouts your praise. God, you are the Lord of the nations. And so we gather together with the church around the world and praise you this morning. And Lord, you are the God of everything, but you take the time to write our stories. You take the time to love us as we are. And that is such a blessing and we praise you for God, prepare our hearts this morning to hear your word. I pray that it will change us, that it will shape us to be more like you. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, y'all grab a seat. I don't know how to follow that. I gotta gather myself here. Um, just kind of wanted to keep doing that. Um, I was actually th- sitting there thinking, this is not part of where we're going at all in the talk, but um, when Jesus gave his uh, great commission that this, the blessing of his gospel is going to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, we're going to make disciples of all the nations. Think about how, this just, just struck me. Uh, think about, he probably spoke that in Aramaic, which was an ancient uh, Near Eastern language. Think about how foreign English would have sounded to those disciples upon hearing that announcement. And yet we hear, sing in English, great are you, Lord. And in Aramaic, great are you, Lord. And in Tamil, great are you, Lord. And it's just an amazing picture 
of this God that we serve who's reaching the nations, and that means includes even Arkansans like us. Uh, and so um, that's just really cool. And so uh, as for free, it's not where we're going at all. Um, it's a big sports day. Uh, I'm Garland. Great to be with you all. we got the Super Bowl um, today. And as a, as a big sports day, uh, it got me thinking just what are the, some of the things that we, why do we like sports so much? And I was thinking about it, like um, whether you, whether you played a sport growing up or played a sport in college or whether you're just a fan of a, of a sports team. If you don't like sports, I'm sorry, this won't land on you at all. But um, if you, it, it, what, what is it about sports that we, that we value, that we like? And I was thinking, well, there's a lot of real life that plays out in, on sports fields or in sports arenas. A lot of things that happen in real life, they kind of play out in micro. Like we get to the overwhelming highs and joys of victory. Who was there? Uh, yesterday didn't even happen to me because I'm still in this mode, okay? So yesterday didn't even happen. Just this overwhelming sense of joy and accomplishment and victory. And then we also see uh, on a sports field like the, the, the pain and the sting of defeat. And as, as I was thinking about it, one of, the, one of the things that we also experience either as a fan or as a player is you have the experience of that moment when everything just seems like kind of hopeless, where the, the chips are stacked against you and it seems like the, all the calls are going the other way. You're down 21 in the third quarter. It seems like all hope is lost. And we can see this in like a micro level in an individual game or a macro level like for an entire sports franchise. Like I want you to consider, for example, the Cincinnati Bengals. They're playing today. I don't know if there's any Bengals fans in the room, but if you're a Bengals fan, you went through decades of bleakness, like decades of dreariness and hopelessness, like no playoff wins, very little relevancy. You're watching all the other teams in your division constantly win, and you're waiting just in that hopeless despair. Will the winds change in our direction? Will the calls start going our way? Will we have a breakthrough? And two years ago, they finally got it. They got the number one draft pick, but we see so often those draft picks don't work out, but the breakthrough happened. And in two years, they're playing in the Super Bowl today. I mean, from empty hopelessness, decades, to the precipice of glory <laughs> in two years, because this guy, they drafted this guy, all right? Uh, now, I remember my own personal playing career, which wasn't all that extensive, and uh, this, won't, uh, this won't impress any of you in the room. In fact, you, you won't like me for this, but I, I played it at Bentonville. Okay, I know they're rivals, and I know they're Fayetteville's rivals, and they are now. I like to think I had a lot to do with Bentonville's, the legacy of success that now is the Bentonville basketball program. I like to think that started with me. Um, so this is me back in high school, and I, I'll, I'll remember this moment really vividly, actually. Um, we were playing Fayetteville, and Fayetteville was really good. They didn't lose a conference game all three years that I was uh, in high school. And uh, we were playing Fayetteville's at our building, and I wasn't captain at this point. I'd been around, and I had experience, and I wasn't very good, so don't, don't, I'm not bragging. I wasn't good. Uh, and so uh, we were playing Fayetteville, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm not, I'm not intimidated by them. Like, we can, we can win this game. Like, we can do this. I'm, I'm a senior now. We can do this. And as the game unfolded, this in the first quarter, and uh, our starters are kind of hanging with them. We're down three, four, something like that, and our coach would do sort of a mass substitution. So me and some of the other, uh, some of the other starters went and sat down, and some sophomores came in, and they were good players, but they didn't have the experience, and Fayetteville went on like a 12, 13, nothing run, and it was capped off. I was, I'll, I'll never forget this. I was checking back in at the scorer's table, knelt down to go back in the game, and it was, their run was capped off by a lob alley-oop that was just a huge thunderous dunk. The place went crazy. I mean, the house came down. And I was sitting there at the scorer's table, and it was hopeless. Like, 
Now we're down 16, the, like it's early second quarter, but I remember thinking, don't worry, I'm coming in. <laughs> like hope is not lost, I'm coming in, we can come back in this game. Now here's the problem that I had is, okay, this is me, the senior year, they had this guy. Now if you don't know who this is, he hadn't been around Fayetteville, uh, this guy turned into this guy who later turned into this guy who is now a coach for the Razorbacks, okay? It's Ronnie Brewer, and he was really, really good. So I came in the game, we're down 15, we lost by 35, okay? Like it was over, like the game was over. I came in with all this excitement, over, okay? They were just way better than us. And the reason is, I mean, look at the discrepancy. He's really good. He played in the league, and I'm me, okay? So I was about as good as I am then as I am now. I was no better, no worse. Uh, we have these moments in sports where I think we really get to appreciate and see the wins and the losses and the, the hopelessness and the can we come back. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in this study of Ruth as we're working our way through it. Now, I, I don't know how you came in here this morning, but you may find yourself in that situation even right now. Maybe you've been in that situation in your life where you look out and it just seems bleak or you look out and it seems hopeless and despair has settled in. I'm not sure what that has looked like for you. Maybe, uh, maybe it's the, the pain or the hopelessness of a job loss. Or maybe there's the, the, uh, the, the nasty kind of gnawing uh, pains of addiction have weaved their way around your life. And no matter how much you try, you seem to never get out of this habit, never get out of this addiction. It just kind of owns you. Or maybe it's uh, one of your kids and, and something with one of your kids just continues to beset. It's either maybe it's an illness or something wrong, a behavior with them that just is always gnawing at you or don't think you're ever gonna get out or maybe it's just a chronic pain or illness that you or somebody that you love is walking through. It's been seasons. You're like, this is never gonna be over. Like I, I can remember for me, I started following Jesus uh, about that time in high school, about 10th grade and uh, in eighth grade, just this besetting addiction to pornography kind of wrapped its arms around my life. And I'll actually remember waking up. I'm now trying to follow Jesus in 10th grade, but for, from eighth grade to early part of college, it just felt like every day I was going into this hopeless battle. Like I'm never gonna get out of this. And no matter how hard I fight, I'm just going into having a losing battle. I'm starting this battle every day down 21 in the third quarter. So I don't know if you came in here like that. I don't know where that has been in your life. But that's kind of how the book of Ruth has unfolded for us, this hopeless, empty despair. And what we're gonna see as we turn the page here to chapter four, as we continue this study, is we're gonna see maybe a breakthrough. Maybe the winds will change. And we're gonna see the, the crescendo of our story here today as we continue this. Now, I wanna look at this through kind of three different character lenses is gonna kind of how we, we approach this, and here's how we're gonna look at it. First, we're gonna look at Elimelech's only hope. He's gonna be our, our, our hopeless character. We're gonna have to remind ourselves of who that even is in the story. Then Boaz's costly rescue, and lastly, Israel's great redeemer. So three lenses we're gonna look at this through. Elimelech, and then Boaz, and then Israel. If you've got your Bibles, I heard you already turning there, well done. Let's go to Ruth chapter four. Now let me pick up the story in chapter three actually to kind of remind us of where we are. In chapter three, Ruth and Naomi have come back from Moab. They've been gone for a decade. Ruth goes down to the threshing floor to Boaz and essentially proposes to Boaz. And Boaz says, I would love to. But look here in the middle, verse 12. It says, although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of your family, there is another, he says, who's more closely related than I. Somebody else is a closer guardian redeemer. The Hebrew word for this is the word goel. Somebody else is a closer relative than me, and this guy has 
higher rank on the pecking order, so to speak. And now hard stop. When we read chapter four, we're going to have to get into some ancient Israelite Hebrew customs and laws. And I'll be honest, when we first read them, they can be a little strange. We're going to do a little background work to understand what's going on here. But, but I want you to, for a, for a moment, before we look at the strangeness of them, and, they, and they might even land strange on some of you today, I want you to first, you have to imagine that you are entering into another world when you read the Bible. You're entering another culture with a different language and different customs and different rituals and different obligations that people have. It's also a different time. So I, I want you to imagine, it's a little thought experiment with me. Maybe some of you have actually had this experience in real life. Imagine that you are not from the American culture and you come into the American culture to experience our Thanksgiving holiday. Now, if you grew up here, then it's very familiar. You have these traditions and these customs with Thanksgiving, but if you had no concept of what Thanksgiving was all about and you entered into it, there'd be a lot of questions you might have. Like, there'd be a lot of weird things. Think about Thanksgiving, how strange it is. Like, if I was entering into that from the outside with no context, I might have a lot of questions. Questions like, is it normal for Americans? Do Americans always eat dried out large birds stuffed with bread and celery and gravy? Is this a normal thing? Do Americans love cranberries out of a can? This is this a normal food that Americans choose to eat? I would assume if I only had context with Thanksgiving, that was my only experience, I'd think, why do Americans always eat at 2.30 to three o'clock? And why are their families so tense when they get together like this? And if I was just entering into this, I might suspect every American loves the Detroit Lions because they all watch the Lions every Thanksgiving, every single year. There'd be a lot of questions that I might have. And let me just, when you read the Bible, Old Testament, Ruth, things like this, and by the way, New Testament, you are entering into another culture, another world, and we have to be humble visitors in that world. Before we come in and go, that's weird, I don't like that, I don't get that, that's uncomfortable. We have to enter into their world humbly and try to see things through their lens. Does that make sense? So to enter into this ancient Israelite world, we're gonna see things like taking your sandal off to make an agreement. We're gonna understand a couple of things though. For the ancient Israelite, two things are really important. There are two things that are really important to your day-to-day -day experience of life on the ground. One, land. Your God has given you this land. And two, bloodline. Your, your family. Land and the family is a really significant on the ground, on the street level for an ancient Israelite. And they've got customs and laws situated with land and family. They're gonna come into play in chapter four of Ruth. The, the first one, let's talk about land first. There, there's a whole set of legal customs that have been established for the ancient Israelite community. They go back to Leviticus chapter 25. You can see them here. This is an ancient custom that we have to kind of wrap our minds around. That's not how it works in our world now, but here's the idea. Concerning land, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, the Israelites are told in Leviticus 25, their nearest relative is to come and redeem or to buy what they have sold. Here's the idea, pretty simple. If this land is supposed to stay in the family, and if my brother falls on hard times, has to sell his property, I have the responsibility to go and buy it for him. Now, if it just so happens that I don't have the means to purchase it and it goes outside the family lines, well, there's a law for that too. It doesn't stay outside the family lines forever. Instead, at the year of the Jubilee, 
That's the 50th year. Every 50 years in Israel, no matter how many times that land had changed hands or no matter who owned it at that point, who has the deed to that land, it goes back to the original family on the Jubilee year. Now, I want you to hear this. This is an amazing picture of equality. This is a beautiful picture of egalitarianism. There are to be no land barons in the ancient Israelite world. There are to be no low-income housing over there, and over here we have the gated community. This is a, a, a beautiful picture of what it looks like where people, instead of trying to take, would instead yield and see that God has provided this for us, and we're going to take care of it for each other. That's a really cool picture. And Israel was meant to be, we see this in, in Exodus chapter 19, they're meant to be a signpost to all other nations to see this is what a community could look like, yielded to God as king. That's pretty beautiful, right? I, I get it. The second one, I think, makes us uncomfortable. That's the one about land. The second one is about family. We find this one in Deuteronomy 25. Now, now hear me. One of the great fears in the ancient culture, we see this in across many different ancient cultures. The great fear that you would have is for your family, your bloodline, your legacy to be blotted out and wiped out. In fact, that was how you would curse someone. One of the curses of the ancient world was your seed and your descendants be wiped out. This is why, by the way, when kings would conquer other kings, one of the first things they would do oftentimes is they would kill all of the living descendants of that king. Like that's what's going on in 2 Kings 25 when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes in and attacks Judah in Israel. And he literally takes the king of Judah, his name is Zedekiah, kills all of his sons in front of him before plucking his eyes out. So the last thing he sees before he's carried off into exile is your bloodline is wiped out. It's really, really important this family bloodline, because that's your legacy. That's how you live on. That's how you extend your life. It's through the lives of your relatives. And there were customs about this. Here they are in Deuteronomy 25. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Rather, her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. It's, a, it's an ancient Israelite custom to make sure that the name is not blotted out. That's a great fear in the ancient world. Now, a, a, a commentator commentating on this says this. He says, the present application of these two laws here in Ruth arises from Israel's distinctive theology of land. Remember, they think it's a gift from God and must remain within the family and family, which must remain intact in order for the life of the ancestors to continue. Land and family, land and family. These are worth dying for. These are worth fighting over. And as I got to thinking about it, I was like, yeah, that's true in the ancient world, but that's not that far-fetched from today. Like we have a whole show. If you've watched this show, that's what this show's about. Land and family and fighting over it. It's literally what the show's about. And so that's not all that foreign to us. Now there's a character that you probably have forgotten in the book of Ruth because he died in the first three verses of chapter one. Back in chapter one, Elimelech, his name ironically means my God is king. Elimelech, he dies. His two sons die. And his two sons had married foreign women. One has gone back home. And the only hope for his name not being blotted out is in Ruth. The line of Elimelech hangs in the balance. And we're gonna see next week, it's a royal line. 
So will a redeemer emerge is the question. Now, now before we look at this and see the redeemer emerging, I, I, I want to just, it's probably worth a, a pause, a timeout. Like, I get it. When we read Deuteronomy 25, some of you, as you're reading that, were like, there's no way I'm marrying my brother's wife. I can't stand her. She's the worst. Like, we get to fight every Thanksgiving. Wow, that's why it's so tense, because of her. Like, I get it. As modern people, we, we read this and go, that makes us uncomfortable. Like, us, I have, we had friends over the other night, and they knew we were teaching this. They were like, what's going to happen in Ruth 4? This, I get, this is just so weird. I get it, Okay. Can, can we, for a moment, though, put ourselves in Ruth's shoes? Remember back in chapter two? We saw this last week. Put yourself in Ruth's shoes. Ruth is a foreign, so she comes from enemy territory. She's a foreign widow. She can't own land. In chapter two, we literally saw her scavenging for, for scraps behind the harvesters. She's almost certainly gonna be completely off the market for anybody to wanna marry because she's a foreigner and she's a widow. She'll likely never produce any children who can help take care of her. By the way, she's also helping be responsible to take care of her mother-in-law who will eventually begin to age. She's very vulnerable to being bought and sold as a slave, raped, attacked. This is her future, look at the future she's staring down. And one of the ideas behind Deuteronomy 25 is, hey, Israel, we don't want to have impoverished, destitute widows struggling out there on their own. I get it's weird for us, but we, we have modern social nets that pick these things up oftentimes. Not so in the ancient community. It's very likely Ruth won't survive. So put your, when we put ourselves in her shoes, I read Deuteronomy 25 and I go, okay, I, get, I see it a little bit. I get it. Now, we get to pick up the story. Where we left off, Boaz was gonna go up to the, to the town and he was gonna settle the matter. Remember, there's a closer redeemer than him. And he goes up to the gates. And here's how, where we pick up the story in verse one. Boaz went up to the town gate. By the way, the town gate was like, almost like we would call it the courthouse, the place where you did business. That's where the elders would gather. So that's where this would happen in the ancient uh, Near Eastern villages. Boaz goes up to the town gate, and he sat there just as the, the garden redeemer, the Goel he had mentioned, came along. It just so happened right on cue, here he comes. The story unfolds perfectly. And Boaz summons him. Hey, come over here. I, I want to talk to you. He says, come over here, my friend. Now, I want you to put uh, air quotes around the word friend in your Bible. It's, a, it's not a great translation, but all the translators go this way, and I understand why. I, I don't know how I would translate it. You can help me. Here's what the Hebrew actually says. He says, come over here, Mr. Mr. So-and-so, or Mr. No-Name. I like to think of it as, come over here, he, sh- he who shall not be named. So it's, they translate it as friend, but it's, a, it's, it's not friend, okay? It's come over here, Mr. He who shall not be named. Now, this is really, really clever on the narrator's part. This is very intentional. Our narrator of this four-chapter four short little story has been really, really intentional with names. You've got the names of Elimelech and his sons. You've got Orpah being named, and she didn't even figure into the story after chapter one. It ends with a genealogy. We've got, Ruth, we've got Naomi changing her name to Mara. The narrator's been really careful with names. 
and here intentionally won't give the name. I mean, Boaz knows who this guy's, he knows the name, and I bet the narrator knows this guy's name, but they won't say it. They just say, Mr. So-and-so, come over here. And I think we're gonna see why in a minute as the story unfolds. So look at what happens. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, hey, sit down. He gathers the elders together. And he said to the, he who shall not be named, hey, you remember Naomi, right? Uh, she's come back from Moab. And it's been a decade. She's come back. It's Elimelech's uh, spouse. Remember her? And she's selling the piece of land that belonged to her relative, Elimelech. Now, she, Naomi doesn't own the land. Okay? The land has been, has been sold outside of the family. She doesn't own the land. So what she's selling is the rights to work it. Okay? She can't own it. She's selling the rights to work it here. And Boaz, he brings the redeemer up and he brings the elders up and he gets a crowd and it's a beautiful setup. I mean, it's, it's amazing what he's about to say. It's really smart on his part. It reminded me actually, you know how in our, like our, especially our primary debates, but our, our major political debates, they've largely, the substance has largely kind of fallen out of those debates and it's become a lot of, can I catch the other person in a gaffe? Or can I say something about their record that trips them up or something about their personal life that kind of embarrasses them in the moment? And then we as the audience have to watch and see how they squirm and see if they can answer it or whatever in the moment. And that's what a lot of our debates have become is, is that kind of stuff. It's for the show of it. And each candidate oftentimes is trying to humiliate or embarrass the other person, catch them up in some kind of a lie or a gaffe. And that's the stuff that we rerun on the news later because we like to laugh at it and SNL makes a joke about it. So that's what oftentimes our, our political debates have become. And Boaz has a beautiful setup here. He's got the crowd, and he sets up Mr. No Name right here. Look at what he says. He goes, hey, um, you remember Leviticus 25, right? He says, hey, I, I thought I should just bring this matter to your attention. And let me suggest to you, in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people, hey, you got a responsibility here to redeem this land. Hey, if you, if you want to redeem it, it's all yours. But if, hey, if not, I'll take it. I'll redeem it. And the man, he, he knows this is a good opportunity for him. He gets the rights to work the land. Sure, he has to take care of Naomi with some of it, but that extra produce can go to him and his kids. And look at his response. When a buck can be made, I'm in. Oh, yeah, I'll redeem it. It's my responsibility after all. I'm obliged. I'll take it. Where do I sign? We have friends like that, right? A buck to be made, a deal, and they're in. Now, look at what Boaz then says next. He says, hey, let me remind you, though, that you, let's not forget Deuteronomy 25. Hey, on, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. She's a, she's a foreign widow, by the way. The dead man's widow. In order to fulfill an obligation that you have, to maintain the name of the dead, with his property. It's, it's a great setup. He's got him out in front of the elders. Now he's exposed. So how will the redeemer respond? Look at what he says. He says, no, no. Then I cannot redeem it. I won't. I will not redeem it. In fact, that will cost my sons. That's gonna cost me a lot. It's costly to redeem this. Tell you what. You, you have it. You redeem the land and you redeem, uh, you redeem Ruth and Naomi. You, you, you have at it. 
I think this is why the, the person's name is not mentioned. Now, we, we don't want him to redeem her, right? As, we, as, the, as we've been following the story, we're rooting for Boaz, but there's a small, subtle little comment that the narrator is making on all those who would, who would reject their responsibility to trust and obey their God. It's subtle, but I think it's in the text that this, the narrator wants us to see that this person has no regard for doing the difficult thing in obeying Yahweh. He's, he's all in when it's easy, but he's out when it becomes difficult. And there's a little comment there that you and I can just wrestle with on our own. Now we come to the moment, the crescendo. The story's been building. You wanna know how's this gonna turn out? That we had the proposal down at the threshing floor. We had all the stuff going on in Moab. How will this, what, what's gonna happen? How will it end up? How's the love story gonna come to its climax? And it's, this is that moment when we're waiting. What will happen? It's like Meg Ryan at Riverside Park waiting on her lover. Who's it gonna be? And we all know that it's Tom Hanks as we watch You've Got Mail, but she doesn't know. We wanna see how she's gonna respond. And here he comes and she says, I wanted it to be you. Or it's like Meg Ryan is sleepless in Seattle as she's waiting for her lover to show up that she's fallen in love with over the phone. Or it's like Meg Ryan and when Harry met Sally on New Year's Eve, by the way, she was the queen of romantic comedies, was she not? For like three decades, she ruled, all right? You couldn't make her romantic comedy without Meg Ryan. She, she's waiting there on New Year's Eve and you wanna see will, how will this love story turn out? And finally, at last, Boaz steps forward announces to the elders, not tomorrow, not five years from now, not when I can get my funds together, today. Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi the land, and I'm here to redeem Ruth to, to carry on the name of Elimelech. Like imagine the scene. Like imagine if Ruth and Naomi, I suspect they did. It's not in the text, but I imagine they would have. Did they, did they kind of creep up to the town gate to see how it would unfold? And imagine they're watching it from afar. They can't hear it. They see the interchange. They see the back and forth. Was it 10 minutes, 30 minutes? How long did Mr. No Name and Boaz talk before finally said, I don't want it, you take it. And they see Boaz step forward. Gentlemen, today. And you can imagine the relief, the joy from emptiness and darkness and scavenging for food to now the bride. And what, what I love about the story, it's, it's, so, it's so cool. Like, I don't see in Boaz some kind of a begrudging obedience here. I guess I'll fulfill my duties and go fo follow this Deuteronomy law. No, he delights in this as the story has unfolded. It's a love story. We're meant to read it as a love story. We have Elimelech's only hope, Boaz's costly rescue. It, it'll cost him we don't know about Boaz's family, but uh, if he has his own kids, his own family, but this is costly for him. And lastly, Israel's great redeemer. I mean, this is a, it's a beautiful story, right? Like it's an amazing picture of from emptiness to fullness, from hopelessness to joy. That's why we like telling it. But it's certainly more, hear me, than a cute little love story. So much more than just an ancient love tale that the Hebrews like to tell. So much more. You see, the story of Ruth, the story of these four chapters will serve as a perfect picture of the brokenness of the people of Israel and their desperate need for a rescue. 
it's, it's not lost on us that this, this story takes place in the days when the judges ruled. If you ever read the book of Judges, this is the downward spiral of Israel going into more and more and more brokenness. It's, it doesn't get any more hopeless than reading the book of Judges. And in those days, when Israel's in desperate need of a rescue, that's when our story is set. And it serves as an amazing picture. You see, the people of Israel, as the story of Israel unfolds, later on in Israelite history, they would actually tell the story of Ruth every single year at their barley harvest uh, gathering, which we call, by the way, Pentecost now. They would gather together and tell the story of Ruth every single year. It was a fan favorite for the people of Israel. Why? Because for generations, the nation of Israel has found themselves, look at the pages of your Old Testament, desperately hoping for a rescue, stuck in their brokenness and sin and shame and idolatry, hounded by foreign oppressors, always looking to the wrong place instead of going to the right place, eventually led off into exile, now finding themselves as refugees in a distant land, hopeless and desperate and longing that maybe their God would show up and do something to bring rescue and hope for them. When you finish the pages of your Old Testament, it doesn't get any more hopeless. Where's the rescue? We need a redeemer. And the pages of the Bible will say that it's through Israel that the redemption of the world will come. And when I look out at the world as I see it then and now, so often I see things that just look bleak. Not just individually in our own lives, in my life, but when I look out at our world at a macro, in desperate need of a breakthrough, of a rescue. And as the pages of Scripture turn to the New Testament, we're going to see an Israelite priest. He knows the story. He knows the hopelessness. In fact, he's experiencing it firsthand, him and his wife. But he's going to have an announcement that a child will be born. And look at what he says in response to this announcement. This, this child, he says, Praise be to Yahweh, my Lord. He's the God of Israel. Why? Because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's rescued them. And this child will grow to announce that he has come to set the captives free and to bring sight to the blind and to touch and cleanse the broken and the hopeless. And this child will grow to take the hopeless despair and brokenness of, the Israel, of Israel and their sin and the sin of the world and to get it on himself on the cross. And this child on the third day in his victory over death will signal that the breakthrough has happened, that sin and death have indeed lost and that hope now reigns in him. Now, now Paul, reflecting on all of this, will say this in Ephesians. He says, in him, in this child, this Jesus, in him, look at what we have, redemption, being set free, bought out of the brokenness. But at what cost? Remember, it was very costly for Boaz. At what cost? Through his blood. That enacts the forgiveness of sin. And was this some kind of begrudging submission thing on Jesus' part? Was this some kind of begrudging thing that God had to do? No. It was according to the riches of his grace, which he overpoured out or lavished on us. He delights to redeem and restore. He delights to bring hope where there's hopelessness. He delights to bring light 
to the darkness. We sang about it earlier. So here's how, we, here's how I close this thing down. Do you, do you know God as your redeemer, as your husband, as your lover? That, that may be a weird question to even try to wrestle through. Do, do you picture God as the distant, kind of angry grandpa who gave you some rules for your yard and kind of stays out of the way, just don't mess with him? Or do you picture God as a, like a police officer with a speedometer kind of checking your life to see if you get out of line and give you a ticket and get you in trouble? Or maybe you even picture God as a savior. Yeah, God's a savior, but he's, he's a disappointed savior. He's, he's doing it, but he kind of has to because he said he would, and when he looks to, he's still sort of disappointed. Or do you see him as your redeemer? Later in Ephesians, Paul will say, Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her that he might cleanse her and wash her clean, no longer a scavenger, but cleaned. And it, the word sanctify means make special, set apart. That a beautiful picture. Do you know our God as your redeemer? A husband who delights over you. To that end, to just get us processing and thinking, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing these words declaring the faithfulness of our God, the love of our God, as we run to him. Let's pray. Father, what an what a, what a awesome story Ruth is and what a picture it paints of the brokenness not only of my life and the ancient Israel community and Ruth's life, but our world. And then as the pages of Scripture unfold, we see a, a God who delights to lavish on us his grace. And so we want to run to you right now. No matter what hopelessness we brought in this room, pain, victories, and defeats, run to you as our redeemer. Thank you for loving us. We celebrate your love in Jesus' name. Amen. We are his portion. He is our pride. Drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes If his grace is an ocean We're all sinking So heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss And my heart turns violently inside of my chest I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves
stand with us as we sing songs and proclaim God's faithfulness? God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant, of faithful promises. And time and time again, you have proven, you do just what you say. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast and let
Fellowship of Worship wrote this next song with the book of Ruth in mind, and it's about God's faithfulness. So let's sing this together. The wilderness you brought me home again Where you have and always will From the lowly bit you hold me up again You have and always will Where you have and always will Sing it, church. You give hope. You have and always will.
it hasn't always will And your faithfulness keeps us in your hands It hasn't always will Amen! So the, the promises, the stacked up promises of God's faithfulness, just waiting and waiting and waiting as we read through the, all of our Old Testament, they find their yes. They find their answer in the face of Jesus, delighting to dispense kindness and grace and goodness to those that would follow him. Our response, by the way, we will be faithful to him. We, he's our anchor in the ground. And no matter what season you find yourself hopeless or celebrating, we're faithful to him in return. See, he's worth it, is he not? He's the love of our souls. What else will we run to, right? So if you've got questions about this story, if you're like, I don't get it, we'd love to process that with you. Our prayer team, they're right through those doors, would love to process that with you. If you feel stuck, we would love to process that with you. If you wanna celebrate, we'd love to process that with you in the prayer room. Our, we'll have some of our staff down here. Fellowship Fayetteville. We love you. Have a great day. Great Sunday.